Thank you for joining the Home Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at myhomechurch.org. Jesus, that's, that's our heart cry, Lord, that you would be seen as preeminent in this house, that your supremacy, your excellency would be put on display. We ask, Jesus, that you would be made famous in this house. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would lead us to point to the one who is worthy of all. And we pray right now, Holy Spirit, that as you open the word, I pray you would lead us to encounter the living word, that we would never be the same. I pray, Holy Spirit, for something so personal, where every single person finds themselves this morning, I thank you that you will meet them right there. I thank you that there is so much more in you, Lord. And right now, our hearts are open as best as we know how. We are opening our hearts and saying, we want more. We want more. Whatever that looks like, we want more. So let the fullness of your word be done here. May it comfort those who need comfort. May it confront those who need to be confronted. In all things, have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Yeah. Oh, boy. Really rich in here right now. <laughs> oh man, I consider myself so blessed that I get to step in after that. <laughs> and um, man, thank you, worship team. Isn't our worship team just so so awesome? I, I mean that. I know you know we just pray that he he is essential, but. He works through people, and they have a, a yes in their heart to really yield their lives, and it's just such a sweet, sweet time that we've had with the Lord. Um, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm so excited to jump in the Word. Just a few things really quick. Um, I'm sorry, I didn't even actually get to talk to them, but next week, Crystal and Steve, we're going to have you guys for a few minutes share next week some of the testimonies, by the way, that they're back from their missions trip. <laughs> so... We'll be able to hear about that and share about another uh, upcoming trip that we're looking to do early uh, next uh, winter in the new year, all right? Okay. Are you guys ready to jump in the Word? All right, let's go to uh, Mark chapter 4, please. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. So we'll jump in that in just, just a few moments. How many of you guys were with us this past weekend for Deeper? Just amazing, right? Amazing. Where's Johnny? Oh, there he is. Johnny uh, was in this house last Sunday, and just I feel we're still just stepping into what happened here last Sunday. Um, but it was an incredible, incredible uh, just time together. And a few days before Deeper, there was something, there was a word that was really welling up in my heart. I mean, really welling up in my heart, maybe one or two days before, and I thought maybe it would be something that would be released there, but it wasn't, and honestly, I'm really grateful because I feel like I've been able to really sit on it and marinate on it, and, and I just feel the Lord just connecting more things, going deeper with it in my own heart. 
Um, one of the things that I've recognized is uh, it's actually deeply connected to where we've been as a body. So if you've been with us prior to Deeper and where we're going to be for the next few weeks is the Lord has been really speaking about the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord. And actually, I didn't see this full connection, but I believe what we're going to unpack is not going off that trail. It's actually so connected to us as believers walking in the fear of God. And I can't go through all that we've unpacked the last few weeks, but I will just say this, that I have tried to lay a foundation and labor extensively to put before you what does it mean for a believer? I'm not talking about an unbeliever, but for a believer who's been filled with the Spirit, washed by the blood of Jesus, what does it mean that God says, I'm going to put the fear of God in you? When Jesus died that we would become one, what does that mean now that we walk with the fear of the Lord? And what we've recognized is that this fear is not a, it's not a devilish fear that gets us to coward back from the Lord. It's not a fear that gets us to um, close our hearts off from the Lord and actually be afraid of him. That's the endemic fear from sin. But Jesus has broken that over our lives. But the fear of the Lord that we've been invited into is this holy fascination now. It's this delightful trembling where we are moved and undone by his awesomeness. It's this holy zeal and jealousy to protect and preserve that which we find most sacred, which is the union that we've been given with him. Just as I would fight for my marriage covenant, so there is something within me, this godly jealousy, this fear of the Lord, that when my life would feel like it's going to go out of alignment with him, something rises up to say, no, I won't allow myself to go that direction because I love him so much. And so these are the things that we've been talking about. But how do you grow in the fear of the Lord? <laughs> and I've just been pouring through this, and, and uh, scripturally, you find a number of things. Number one, I not number one, but the first thing that I was thinking about is the word of God. Isaiah 66 calls us to tremble at his word. So if we're going to tremble before God Almighty in holy adoration, one of the primary places God's going to release that awe-filled trembling is through his word. Like God, man, we need, to, we need to have a trembling at his word again. God wants to bring a trembling back in his bride, and I mean that in the most glorious way. Are you, do you guys understand what I mean by trembling? It's not, a, it's not I'm afraid now. It's I'm, I'm, I'm overwhelmed, though, by what I'm seeing, the infinite one. So that's one. Proverbs 29 talks about actually uh, the fear of the Lord is a choice. I believe we can make life choices that will steward the revelation of the fear of God and will grow in it more and more. Uh, there are a number of things, but what God was stirring in my heart that I began to see through the scriptures, the pattern, I think one of the most dominant ways to grow in the fear of God is to encounter God himself. <laughs> there is something you cannot learn from a textbook or a speaker when you are before the Lord of Lord and the King of Kings and the eyes of your heart get opened up and you begin to actually just catch a glimpse of all that he is. We are forever changed in that moment. And I, guys, I believe so deeply today, today and weeks to come, I believe God wants to release fear of the Lord encounters in this house. Fear of the Lord encounters where we say, oh my goodness, I thought I knew this man, but there is so much more to him. This is what we need. Listen, if I'm going to provoke you, so important, guys, you can, you can talk about any biblical truth, but we're talking about fear of God. If I'm going to provoke you to be gripped by his awesomeness, and we're going to provoke this community and this world to be gripped by his awesomeness, you know what that means? We have to have seen his awesomeness. We have to have beheld the glory. There, listen, if it's raining outside, I want you to hear this. If it's raining outside and I come in here and I say, guys, it is absolutely teeming outside right now. Now, I have passion. I have conviction. You can even hear the rain coming down on the roof. There's no doubt that that will impact you. 
but it will never impact you in the same way as if I come in from being outside and say, guys, it's raining outside, and as I'm speaking, the water is dripping off my head. My clothes are sucking to my skin because I have been in the rain itself. I am dripping with the realities of that which I'm speaking. We need men and women who drip with the realities of that which they speak. When they say he's awesome, it's because they've come into the Holy of Holies themselves and they have seen his awesomeness. You can't manufacture that. And God's inviting all of us into this. He says, come, come, come. I want to show you something. This is why, again, we bring it back to the prayer room to get people before the Lord. It can happen in many places, but I, I want us to set our gaze on him. I want us to drip with the Lord this morning, all right? And in particular, the fear of God. I want us to see it so that when we go out and say, have you beheld him, the most excellent one, the almighty one? It's not something we've just memorized, but our own eyes have seen that, yes? So let's look. Oh, man, I'm, I'm like, I'm so excited. <laughs> I really, I... I but God, it's for the, it, yeah, there has to be a hunger though, guys. There has to be a hunger. This isn't a works thing. This isn't a works thing. Jesus said to the church at Ephesus in, in Revelation, when they fell from their first love, now this is a different story, but I just want to hear this principle. He says, repent and do the works you did at first. There's actually works that stir love. Do you know that? There's works that are not rooted in dead religion, but actually says, if I love him, I'm actually going to do things to cultivate and steward that love relationship. There's a hunger that God, that we've got to step in. There's grace for us to walk into it. And as we do, I'm telling you, today and watch, weeks to come, there's going to be encounters with God. We're going to say, oh my goodness, I've never seen him this way before. And it's going to, it's going to wreck us in the most beautiful way. All right, so let's, let's look at Mark chapter 4. And I'm going to... Um, I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'll just pick it up in, in verse uh, 37, Mark chapter 4. For those of you who don't know, this, uh, this story, uh, Jesus and his disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee, okay? Jesus is fast asleep, and there's about to be a massive uh, storm that comes in. The reason why, not to get too much outside into the, the history of this and the culture, but the way the Sea of Galilee was situated it was uh, its connection point with the Mediterranean Sea, the way it was, it, it was um, positioned, it would create this wind tunnel. And there were these times where this wind would come off and actually come into the Sea of Galilee, and it would cause literally almost a, like a natural disaster type environment. The, the, the winds would howl and the waves would roar, and it would come in like instantaneously. That's what they're experiencing. This wind tunnel has whipped into the Sea of Galilee. Now Jesus is with them, but I want you to see what happens. Verse 37 and a great windstorm arose, a great windstorm. These winds are howling. And the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. And then verse 38 says, but he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? All right, let's just stop here for, for a moment. I imagine that this boat looks like a toothpick in a whirlpool. Like, really, the, 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 this, this boat is being tossed around by the waves and the ocean. Now, just keep this in mind. Most of Jesus' disciples are seasoned fishermen. They are well accustomed to navigating the seas when there's perilous conditions, but even they believe that death is imminent based on what they're facing, which tells us this storm is not your average storm. They really believe they are about to die. 
Water's coming in the boat. They see no way out. Jesus is fast asleep. And they come to say, teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? And look what verse 39 says. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Now just imagine this. These winds are whipping. He speaks and the, glass be- uh, the sea becomes like glass. In a moment, a great calm comes over the storm. And then it says in verse 40, he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And I love what verse 41 says. Here's the inner dialogue between the disciples after they encountered this man who just calmed this storm. Verse 41, and they were filled with great fear. (laughs) This is the awesomeness of God had gripped their heart. They were in awe They could not believe what they had just witnessed, that when they thought they were going to die, this man who was sleeping simply wakes up, says, peace be still, and this entire storm is gone. And they say, with great fear, trembling in their hearts at, oh my goodness, who is this man? They said to one another, who then is this man? That even the wind and the sea obey him. Or as some translations say, what manner of man is this? And I felt in a moment, the Holy Spirit began to show me a number of encounters between man and Jesus where the same expression is given. Who is this man? And I want to put before you that I believe one of the most appropriate responses when us, frail individuals, encounter the King of glory is with our mouth hanging open saying, who is this man? Now this is the key is that the disciples, if you go through the first few chapters of Mark, They have already been walking with Jesus for quite some time. They have had a front row seat to his teachings, which had such authority. They saw the miracles flowing. They saw the way the wisdom of heaven was on him when the Pharisees tried to trap him. And yet even after walking with Jesus for quite some time and seeing all of this, there was still an encounter to be had that left them saying, wait a minute, I thought I knew this man. I thought I'd seen it all. But who is this man? that when he speaks to the wind and the waves, they are silent. And I believe my heart, God wants to release encounters today and weeks to come that lead us to say, who is this man? Who is this man? Beloved, this is the invitation into the more from God. How can this not be our response if his greatness is unsearchable? How can we not, if we're meeting... Everywhere in Scripture, when people meet Jesus, they're left saying, who is he? I, I, I thought I understood who he was, but he is so much bigger than that. These encounters, you know what they do? They release fresh awe in the hearts of God. We need awe to be restored in the house of God again. You know what these things do? They release wonder. They release holy fascination. We find our hearts captivated. Guess what starts happening? You, start, you stop sinning. Why? Because your heart is captivated by something greater. In these encounters where we, where we meet Jesus and say, oh my goodness, I thought I knew him, but I had no idea. Everything gets reoriented in our inner life. Guys, these encounters is what breaks boredom. These encounters is what breaks religion. It breaks rigidity. It breaks staleness. God releases fresh fire in the hearts of his people. These encounters break the neat little charts and statements of faith that we try to present Jesus with, saying, if you want to know him, this is who he is. Guys, that's all well and good to have those things, but I want you to know, he does not fit any chart. 
He does not fit any number of fundamental truths. That is not a bad thing to have them, to be rooted, but I want you to know something. One encounter, and you will realize, oh my goodness, we could never fit who he is in one piece of paper. This is what we need. Awe and wonder back in the hearts of God's people. And I just, I, I really, I feel like with all that's happened, the Lord is saying like, now, now, now. If we just say, God, we're gonna, we're gonna push, we're gonna push the TV away. We're gonna push the plate away. We're gonna push everything away, God. We're in. We want this one thing. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you shall be filled. Not maybe, not one time, not the person next to you. If you start changing the ways of your life, I promise you will be filled. You will be filled and overflowing with the, who this Jesus is. Oh, I want this. <laughs> I want this holy fascination. Who is this man? You know, John the Beloved, I've shared this before, but it's so appropriate for this. John the Beloved, at the Last Supper, put his head into the chest of Jesus. It's amazing. Rest in the head of Jesus, uh, rest in, in the bosom of Jesus. I mean, just imagine this intimacy. When Jesus said someone's going to betray him, Peter was like, John, you ask him. <laughs> he saw that John had something amazing. John was so close to him. And yet in Revelation chapter 1, the same John encounters the glorified Christ. He sees the one whose eyes are like fire, whose hair is as white as wool, which is an image for all wisdom, whose feet are like pillars of fire and bronze, whose mouth is the sound of many rushing waters. You know what John says? I fell as if I was dead. <laughs> the same one who put his head on the chest of Jesus and rested he has now another encounter with a different aspect of Jesus. And he says, I fell as if I was dead. He saw a different side of Jesus. Some of us need to rest in his chest this morning. Some of us need to see him as the glorified one and fall before him as if we were dead. But here's what I can tell you is that we need every facet of Jesus. I want every facet of Jesus. I want every single aspect of Jesus I want to know him as a redeemer, but I want to know him as judge. I want to know him in his kindness, but I want to know him in his judgments. I want to know him in his love, but I want to know him in his wrath. I want to know him as servant of all, but I want to know him as Lord of all. I want to know the Jesus that comforts me, but I want to know the Jesus that will confront me. I want to know every aspect of him. You know why? Because Song of Solomon says of our bridegroom king, he is altogether lovely every part of them, any angle, any perspective, wherever you find yourself beholding the lamb, you will come to the same conclusion. He's lovely. He's perfect. He's worthy. He's beautiful. Some things are beautiful from a distance, but when you get up close, you say, whoa, <laughs> that's not what I thought. Now, outside of Jesus, my wife is the only one that I can say that about. But no, some things are beautiful from far off, but you get a close say, it's not it, not Jesus. He's beautiful from every angle. Some things are beautiful when they're younger, but over time they begin to fade away. Not Jesus. He's eternally lovely. Some things are beautiful from one angle, like when I do my paint job and I do three sides of it. But then you come behind and you still see the broken down part of it. You come to another angle and say, oh, that's not as beautiful as I thought. Not Jesus. Every aspect of him is lovely. Every part of him is beautiful. Beloved, we should hunger to see him in all of his ways. When is the last time, this is, I'm speaking to myself, the Lord. When is the last time I've had an encounter with Jesus that, led me, that left me trembling in awe? When's the last time we had an encounter with Jesus that said, 
who is this man? Who is this man? All I want to do is provoke our hearts this morning to hunger for this, to know there's more. Do you, do you know that in Revelation 10, I, I want you to see like who Jesus is. Revelation 10 is this incredible picture of this glorious angel that comes down out of heaven, okay? I want you to hear the descriptions. The angel, as the heavens open up, this angel, it says, he's wrapped in a cloud. This is not a white fluffy cloud. This is the Shekinah glory cloud. He is wrapped in the glory of the Lord. It says there's a rainbow around his head. Why? Because there's a rainbow around the throne and he's been before the throne of God. Therefore, what you behold, you begin to radiate. So he's got the glory of the Lord. It says his mouth or his, his words sound like a lion's roar. His legs are like burning pillars of fire. But here may be the most astonishing description of him. It's how massive he is. <laughs> It says, one of his feet is on the dry land, one of his feet are in the sea, and his body reaches from the heavens and the earth. Can you picture this for a moment? <laughs> this massive, glorious, angelic being, and yet if Jesus were to walk up to him, he would join the thousands of thousands before the throne, fall on his knees, and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lamb of God. Just think about that. If I saw that angelic being, I would be wrecked. This being comes before Jesus and it will fall on its face saying, there's no one like you. This angel gets his marching orders from Jesus over this bottomless pit. He can't even move without an angel telling me he can move. So the angel who comes under Jesus is telling him, you can do this action now. What he does is he releases. It says he comes and he judges all. And do you know what he does to judge these beastly figures? It says he speaks a word. All Jesus, who is this man that gigantic, glorious angels bow before him? Who is this man that when Paul was riding, who is this man that when he appears, the sun looks dim before him? Oh my goodness. We say, Jesus, come in your full glory. Guys, our mortal bodies couldn't handle that. I just want you to picture, this is why we need a glorified body. Now, this is what's more mind-blowing, is that he's friend, he's bridegroom. This is who we're engaging with. I want you to picture this. On a, on a warm summer day, when I step out of my house, have you ever had it where you step out and the sun is so bright, you look for a moment, you have to turn your head down. My eyes begin to tear because it's so strong. Do you know how many, who knows, billions of light years that sun is away? And yet Jesus, Jesus, he created that. He created that. What do you think would happen if Jesus, the Lord of glory, and his fullness came right in the center of our gathering? The sun that I can't even look at, he created. If he stood right here, guys, we would be on the floor. We would, the blinding light of his glory, we wouldn't even be able to stand. Who is this man that the sun is made dim before his presence? John, John 11, the raising of Lazarus. Guys, who is this man that when he comes up to a tomb, he doesn't even have to enter into it? A man dead four days, he doesn't go inside and give mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. There's no CPR. He simply comes before the tomb and says, Lazarus, come forth. And a dead man for four days comes out of the tomb and there's life. Now think about this. 
I want you to actually think about what would have to happen within the body of Lazarus for him to be able to be alive again. <laughs> think about all of the things that have been broken down for four days. Think about the heart that has been decayed. Think about the blood that has become stiff and doesn't flow. Think about his brain cells that are dead. And when Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, the heart begins to beat again. Blood begins to flow through the veins again. Brain cells begin to pop and be activated again. All by this man's word. All we need to say is, Lord, I want to tremble before you. How can we come in board? And I'm not saying there's something so beautiful. I'm just, I'm just speaking rhetorical question. How could we be bored? How could we be unmoved? Clearly, we're not looking. Clearly, we're not seeing. Oh, open the eyes of our heart, Lord, that we would see. Matthew 21, Jesus has his triumphal entry. He walks into Jerusalem. It's his final week, the Passion Week. And in verse 10 of Matthew 21, it says, As he enters Jerusalem, listen to the response of the city. It says, The whole city was stirred up. The whole city was stirred up asking one question. You know what they're asking? Who is this man? Who is this, guys, who is this man that when he walks into a city, every heart is, is vexed, every heart is provoked, every heart is moved? Who is this man whose presence merely coming into a city causes every heart to say, who is he? In Luke chapter 5, Jesus is, it's where he heals a paralytic. He's in this room. The crowds have gathered. There's all different types of people there. There's the scribes, the Pharisees. You've got the hungry and it says in verse 17 that the, the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And so here he's in this room, and there's just powerful things happening. There's not another square inch for a body to enter in. But there's a man who's paralyzed, and he wants to be touched by Jesus. He knows it's his only hope. So his friends climb up on the roof of the house, tear the roof open, and they lower his friend in. It says, when Jesus saw their faith, he looked at the man and says, your sins are forgiven. And you know what the scribes and the Pharisees began to do? They began to have an internal dialogue with one another, and they said, who is this man? Who is this man that blasphemes? For only God can forgive sins. In other words, what they were saying is, who is this man that claims within himself you can have peace with the Father? Who is this man that says within himself your transgressions can be wiped away and your slate can be made new, that you can have a fresh start? Who is this man who offers forgiveness of sin and a new heart? My goodness, who is this man? A few chapters later, Luke 9, Jesus gathers the 12 together and then sends them out with authority. And they go out two by two and they're healing. He says, go proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and heal everywhere you go. And that's exactly what they do. And reports of all that's happening through this man, Jesus, and his his followers, begin to hit the ears of Herod, the local leader of the day. And Herod is perplexed. Herod is confused. He's bewildered because he dealt, just dealt with John the Baptist but beheaded him. And now he's hearing of one who's greater than John. Now he's hearing of one who's bringing the kingdom of heaven here and now on the earth. And Herod, it says in Luke chapter 9, he says, John I beheaded, but who is this man? Who is this man that I hear of such reports? Who is this man, Jesus? Oh, there's so much more. No matter what we've seen or encountered, 
there is so much more that God wants to lead us into. I want to share one other portion of Scripture, and we're just going to pray. Uh, again, I just want to provoke our hearts. Turn with me to Colossians 1, and we'll finish out here. Colossians chapter 1. And we're going to start in verse 15. Are you guys with me right now? Colossians 1. These, we're going to look at verse 15 to 20, and then we're just going to pray, and we're going to pray for these God encounters to start happening now and be intensified as the days go on. Do you believe God can do that? Like, I really believe if you trust me as your shepherd, I believe God has said, I want to lead us into this. If we would say yes, we're going to have these encounters, our eyes are going to be opened up. These six verses, guys, these six verses are widely regarded as the greatest Christology passage in the New Testament, meaning the theology of Christ. Nothing so powerfully, clearly, and so, uh, in such a short amount of time, exalts the beauty and the supremacy and the excellency of Jesus. I want to encourage you with something. If your heart ever grows cold, if you ever begin to waver, go here. Go here and sit before the Lord and say, Father, open my heart by the Spirit that I would see the Son rightly. And I promise you this, there is a trembling that will hit your heart. It will be the most delightful, like, reorienting experience as you sit before him and your eyes get open. And then, and then ask the Father by the Spirit to put a love and affection in your heart that is appropriate for the greatness of the one that's being revealed in this passage. So I don't want to offer up anything less than what he is worthy of. So here's, here's my goal again. I, all I want to do is provoke, I want to fan the flame in our hearts to say, Jesus, I, I, I want to see you like this. I promise you this, guys, if that is your cry, he will respond, no matter how weak that cry may be. You may say, I know this is truth. I just feel like staying where I'm at. You just acknowledge that and watch how God will come in. <laughs> so here we are. We're going to read verses 15 to 20, and then we're going to pray. I'm literally giving you cliff notes here. <laughs> go in and go deeper. There's so much more. Who is this man? Verse 15, who is this man who rescued your soul, who abides in you by the Spirit? Verse 15 says, he is the image of the invisible God. The scriptures say that no one has seen the Father, nor anyone can see the Father, because 1 Timothy 6.16 says he dwells in unapproachable light. Again, our mortal bodies could actually not handle the fullness of the Father's glory. That's why we need glorified bodies. No one has seen him, nor anyone can see him. But he who is invisible has been made visible in the image of Jesus. The glory of the Lord tabernacled among us that we could behold it in the person of Jesus. If you want to know who the Father is, look to Jesus. He is the most perfect, he's the deepest, he is the fullest revelation of God Almighty. He was Yahweh, Emmanuel, God with us. Just listen to this verse. You don't need to turn there. Revelation 21, in the new heaven, new earth, verse 23. Listen to this description. Again, there's, there's so much imagery that comes forth 
but the point can still be made without unpacking all of it. Verse 23, it says of this future city, which is actually a people, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. No need of sun or moon to shine on it. Why? For the glory of God gives its light. The glory of God. Can you imagine that? Whether or not there's a sun and moon is really irrelevant. Here's what you need to know. Even if it's there, the one who eclipses it and makes it look dim is everywhere now. But here's the last part of that verse that's so fascinating. It says, and its lamp is the lamb. Its lamp is the lamb. In other words, there's a day coming where we won't even need the sun and moon. It may be there, who knows, but here's what I know. The glory of God will fill every square inch. His radiant glory will fill every single person and every single thing on this earth. And its lamp, meaning the vehicle that will, that will release this glorious light on the earth, is the lamb. You could find yourself in some cave in the new heaven, new earth, being overcome by this glory. If you were to trace, I imagine if you trace this beam of light back, it'll not come back to a code of ethics. It won't come back to a statement of faith. It will come back to a man's presence just resting on the earth. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Everything coming back to this glorious one who's just radiating the light. Hebrews 1.3 says he is the radiance of the glory of the Father. I just picture literally this man just resting on the earth and glory is everywhere. He is the image of the invisible God. Who is this man? He is the firstborn of all creation or over all creation. This does not mean that Jesus is a part of his creation. This does not mean that Jesus was, uh, if you would, he was born in the first or the original member of creation. This is saying he is supreme and sovereign over all creation. He is firstborn. Firstborn is actually a title that's given to declare one who has a unique position of blessing and favor and inheritance. So the firstborn in, in the days of, of the Old Testament was very significant. This is what Jacob and Esau battled for. The firstborn receives the double portion. What, what Paul wants us to do is marvel at the one who holds the highest position of blessing and favor before the Father. Paul wants us to marvel at the one who holds all inheritance of the Father. That actually, when you put your faith in Jesus, you become a co-heir with Christ. All that he has, he gives to you. The firstborn, listen to this verse, Psalm 89, 27. Speaking of David, but ultimately the Messiah. It says, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. In other words, firstborn is a title given to one who has the utmost power, position, authority, ranking. When it says he's the firstborn of all creation, it means he is Lord over original creation. He is Lord over original creation. Look at verse 16. Oh my goodness, it just gets better and better. <laughs> verse 16, for those who are in our Colossians study, <laughs> I call this praising Christ with prepositions. You say, what are you talking about? I'm just going to nerd out for a second. Pre prepositions are these tiny little words that you find in sentences that give relationship to the other words in the sentence. They're so profound. Within them, there is a measurable spiritual wealth. And there's three of them, by, through, and for. And these words will wreck you when you start looking at what it really means. Who is this man? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn. He's Lord, ultimate blessing, favor of all creation. And then verse 16 says, for by him, all things were created. For by him, all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, 
whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were made by him. You know what all things mean? <laughs> Literally everything. Visible and, uh, and unseen, it doesn't matter. The, 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 the galaxies that are so far away we can't see or the dust mites under your shoes right now. <laughs> all things were made by him. The things that you can see and feel, the things that you can't see and can't feel like a proton. All things were made by him. All thrones and authorities. That means every variety of angelical being, both holy and hellish, was actually first made by him. He didn't make it that way. The hellish ones, they, 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 they rebelled from him. But nevertheless, everything is made by him. He says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers and authorities, all things were created through him. He's not only the grand architect of all, he is also the artisan. He's the one who's constructed it, crafted it, and created it. And not only is all things made by him and through him, this is the man who all things are made for him. <laughs> Everything is made for him. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter. It was ultimately made with this purpose, to enjoy him or to bring him joy, to praise him and to glorify him. Life will never make sense until we understand that we are most satisfied when our lives are operating in line with this truth, that we were made for him. Guys, he is the aim. He is the goal. He is the purpose. He is the intent. He is the consummation and culmination of every molecule that moves on this earth. All things were made for this one man. There's nothing that was created to live in independence of Jesus. Everything finds its ultimate fulfillment in living for him. If you don't know him, today's the day for you to live for him. And your life will make sense. Verse 17. And he is before all things. And in him all things are held or he holds all things together. This man, who all things are made by, through, and for, also holds all things together. He is the divine glue. <laughs> he is the cohesive power that keeps everything. Why is the world a, a, a cosmos and not a chaos? <laughs> because there is this continual exertion of divine power flowing from the man of Jesus that's holding everything together. Who is this man that everything, the reason why our bodies aren't breaking down is there's one man who's holding it together. But do not for one moment get the image of the Greek god, lowercase g, Atlas, who carries the earth on his back with great burden, who's upholding it, but his shoulders are sunken as he's been cursed to hold the heavens and the earth. No, 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 no. Jesus upholds all things, Hebrews 1.3 says, by the power of his word. By the power of his word. It says he's seated at the right hand. And there is just, I don't know how to say, I just see this, this, this burning light. And there's just glory and power that flows. And he's not even just, there's no stress. He's orchestrating all things. Your life, he holds all things together. Who is this man? Verse 18 and he is the head of the body, the church. The one who holds all things together in the cosmos, he holds the church together. Guys, I know, I know there's issues and I get that, but let me tell you something. Here's why I have hope. Because the one who holds us together is Jesus. 
And I have found that even though in, in minor ways things may go, churches come and go, but on an eternal, like, grand scale, he will not allow his bride to drift off into some immoral, irrelevant, uh, irrelevant abyss. He is the great high priest who is in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, which is the churches. He's not on the outside. He's right in the middle with all of their junk. He's right there saying, I'm with you. That is why I have hope. Because the head who's holding us together is him. Jesus said, I will build my church. I have hope because this one is building his church. Who can stop him? No one. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. By the way, this is a poem. I'm not getting all the details. It's written as a poem. Now it says he's, he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So he's the firstborn over all creation. He's the firstborn over the dead. What's it saying? He's Lord over original creation. He's Lord over new creation. <laughs> he was the first fruits of a new humanity. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You become a brother and sister with something we've never seen before. Jesus pioneered it by going to the cross, conquering death, cracking open the tomb, and ascending to the Father. We now get to be called brothers and sisters. We are a new creation. The future hope is here. I know there's still something coming, but it's here. The kingdom of God is now. The glory of the Lord is here now. But there is a reason that he is the head over the body. There is a reason that he's the firstborn from the dead. Do you know why? Here it is, guys. This is almost the climax of this whole thing. So that in everything, he might be preeminent. So that in everything, he might be preeminent. You say, what does that mean? Preeminent speaks to his superiority, his supremacy, his excellency, his glory. He is the centerpiece of all so that in everything, and especially in the house of God, he would be the one that's made famous. Beloved, I want you to know, I don't care if we meet in the tent the rest of our lives. Here's one thing I care about, that when people walk into this place, the one thing they say is, Jesus is everything here. The one thing he says, Jesus is everything. We've got to ask ourselves, the, the order of church business must be unto this end. Is all that we're doing lifting up Jesus so that he is glorified, so that when people walk in, they say the Lord is there. I do not know who speaks messages there, nor do I like the way he speaks. He's too hyper, and I can't understand anything he's saying. But I will tell you something. I will tell you this, that when I came in, <laughs> my heart was stirred, and I felt the presence of God there. Here's what I will say. Jesus is there. We want the preeminence of Christ. Is your life being lived in such a way that the preeminence of Christ is bursting forth? How are you managing your time, your resources? How are we managing our day-to-day? -day? We must resist the temptation to say that the preeminence of Christ is restricted to one day of the week or to just certain activities like religious activities. Our lives, he is Lord of the cosmos. <laughs> he is far above. You ever watch a, a sporting event? And you watch a player that's like a Michael Jordan, and you're watching, and he says, man, he, he, is, he is out of this league, right? Meaning everyone's playing basketball, but he's on another level. When it says Jesus is far above all rulers and powers, it's trying to say, yeah, there's like some power here, but he's in a whole other dimension. Like everything comes so far below. Our lives, he's worthy of everything, guys. Jesus is so much more than a stepping stool or branding strategy for the church to get out its name. We are not promoting home church here. 
We just have a name so you understand like this is our gathering here. But we do not gather and say the name of Jesus so that the brand goes forth. No, no, no. Everything we do is we get low and say, Jesus, you be seen before man. And Jesus, if you're lifted high, you will draw all men unto yourself. May the preeminence of Christ be seen here. <laughs> it's good. Yeah, let's stop for a moment. Let's just thank the Lord. Jesus, we bless you right now. We bless you right now. You are so worthy. Come on, in your own words, just tell them. You are so worthy, Jesus. You are so worthy. We desire that you would be preeminent in all things, God. Lord, show us the areas of our life where that's not happening. Thank you that you are tender and compassionate, but we want to give you everything, Lord. Every day of the week, God, we pray your glory would be seen here. Let your glory be seen here. Every part of our lives, Lord. Every part of our lives. Thank you, Lord, that there's new mercies to step into this. Thank you that you're inviting. I feel the Lord is inviting people for flames of fire to be restored in their hearts again. So, Lord, I pray for those who may feel like it's just started to dwindle. I thank you that you are that faithful high priest who keeps the lamp burning. Guys, just as the priest of the Old Testament had to keep the menorah burning, he walks among the churches keeping the fire burning. So, Lord, we, we celebrate your faithfulness, and I thank you that you are stoking the flame in hearts again by simply gazing upon who you are. N.T. Wright said this. He said, God raised Jesus from the dead and placed him in authority over the church so that he and only he might be seen and savored, recognized and relished, exalted and enjoyed as the sovereign Lord. And then here's the last two verses. Actually, worship team, if you guys could come on up, because I just want to lead right into this. I want you guys to hear this, though. Verse 19 and 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He's not just kind of God. <laughs> he is God. <laughs> and then verse 20. Oh, listen to this. It says, and through him to reconcile to himself. So what does this mean? God the Father, through this glorious, majestic man, through him is reconciled to himself. God is reconciled to himself through this man all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This means Jesus, all things being reconciled means reconciliation, guys, is bigger than my and yours little life. Thank God it happened. But I want you to know, all things are being reconciled. Jesus, this man, who is he? He is the cosmic reconciler. There is a cosmic renewal that's taking place. It's more than just our lives. All of heaven and earth are being reconciled through this one man. For when sin came in, more than just our lives were touched by it. Romans 8 says, even creation is groaning for the revealing of the sons of God. Even creation felt the effects, 
the tyranny of sin upon them. And even they are longing for this Redeemer to come and set everything right. This, there is an ultimate reconciliation that's taking place. This is why Paul says just a few verses later, a profound statement. He says the hope of the gospel that he's sharing is the same gospel, he says, that you heard, which has been proclaimed to every living creature under heaven. <laughs> now at this point, Paul knows that not even every human has heard the gospel, let alone every living creature. Yet Paul says the gospel I preach to you is the same one that has already been proclaimed to every living creature on the earth. What is he saying? In some form or some fashion, Paul understands that when Jesus died on the cross, it's like there was this cosmic wave <laughs> that went through everything. And even though literally it may not have received the actual message of the gospel, everything has been touched now by this man and what he's done on the cross. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me. <laughs> There's just so many places to go. Because <laughs> if he's reconciling all things, guys, what does that tell us about evangelism? <laughs> oh, we're after something so much more than a few more first-time visitors to a Sunday experience. We're saying the king has come. The future hope is here. This means if he is Lord of all, this means every square inch belongs to him now. Every square inch. Do you know that this city belongs to Jesus? The earth and all that is in it is his. Now, technically it's his because he created it. But now it's his because he paid for it with his blood. He doubly owns it now. It is his. And I want you to know that everything belongs to him. And we are, we've been invited to be ministers of reconciliation. We've been invited to go out and proclaim the good news. Come on, I, I, honestly, I just want to give room for you to meet with Jesus. And you can respond however you want. I know we've been going for a little bit, but if you want to stay where you are, you want to come to the altar, but we're going to worship, and I'm just going to pray that the eyes of our heart be opened up. Something would happen today and in the days to come where we would never see Jesus the same. Is that good? So come on, let's just agree in prayer right now. Right now, Holy Spirit, I pray you would stir our hearts that this is available here and now. I pray we would see that we don't need to be outsiders to what we find in this glorious text, but it's invitations to encounter it now. We are asking, Jesus, we want to meet with you that leaves us saying, who are you? We want to know you in all of your ways. And I pray right now that as hearts turn towards you, I pray that you would lead us to see you in ways we've never seen you. Oh, I pray you would release a holy fascination Release a trembling in your bride that would produce boldness and joy and purity, a steadfastness that would put fire back in our hearts, zeal back in our hearts. Yeah, do it now in your name, Jesus, the name above every name.